is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is here and with us. And we are joined. This is Monday, so it is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. And we have with us the Mayor of Holyoke and his regularly scheduled day of the month, Monday of the month. Joshua Garcia, and thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to ask you about the report that came out, I believe, last uh, on February 9th, uh, distributed by NEPM, I believe, on the 9th or 10th. And it is a report about records that have been obtained from the Holyoke Police Department uh, about civilian complaints. And mm -hmm. under the photograph of the reporter's notebook and police re report, uh, photograph says this, a decade of civilian complaints against Holyoke police show that of the 92 times an officer was named, the department upheld those allegations only three times. NEPM obtained the records after a sweeping police reform law in Massachusetts opened up law enforcement misconduct investigations to greater public scrutiny. I would like to know your reaction, Mayor, to the report that of the 92 times an officer was named as a civilian complaint, a total of eight times, is there any action taken against an officer? These reports go back uh, beginning, I think, in uh, 2010 or 11. Um, they do precede your time as mayor. I'm wondering if you would share with us your reaction to this report. Hey, uh, yeah, absolutely. So when I when I hear the report, you read the title, Complaints That Are Dismissed. It doesn't at all mean that complaints are ignored or not, not looked into. The, the real concern, and not just in police and all of our enforcement departments, uh, many times we get many complaints about several issues depending on the circumstance. And when any complaint gets dismissed, it's because oftentimes re the result is inconclusive. It's hard to react and discipline to something that's not producing any factual information or, or evidence. So that's where it gets a little complicated in local government. But, you know, that does not at all mean that I'm trying to dismiss um, or justify any public concern, because obviously, you know, the goal here is to be sure that we're always trying to uh, implement best practices and, and, and ensuring that we're meeting the needs and the desires that the, the community expects. Um, which is every reason why that, you know, months uh, before that report was published, I initiated and the city council ultimately approved an evaluation of of the police department that it, it wasn't necessarily prompted by any crisis or anything. Um, but instead, it was initiated just after I came into office with just fresh eyes and uh, objective assessment of the department's strengths as well as its weaknesses. And so uh, that report's gonna be available very soon, actually. We're getting ready for a March 6th uh, uh, public safety of the city council uh, meeting to present this report. And my goal here is uh, working together with the community, the police department, as well as the council to implement the recommendations. Having been able to review the draft uh, report the biggest uh, recommendation I think can help resolve a lot of these concerns, many of which were identified in this NEPM report is working toward accreditation. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I read the report uh, like everybody else. It does turn my stomach when you hear some of these concerns. 
being in the inside and being able to uh, look into these issues um, more often than never. It's actually it's complex, um, but there are practices like improving communication, having good policies and procedures. Um, you know, there are different things that we can be doing, making it easy for people to submit complaints, things that we can be doing differently to help alleviate a lot of these concerns identified in the report. One, one as aspect of the report is that the Holyoke Police Department, at least, has interfered, it appears, with civilians coming in and wanting to make a complaint. Uh, do you have any information about that and whether or not there would be a way for persons to submit a complaint online, for example, or would some rule or practice that would require the Holyoke Police Department to tell someone who came in and wanted to file a complaint that the police had to take a complaint? Any thoughts along those lines, Mayor? So, yeah, making it easy um, to submit complaints. Um, we've talked about it um, extensively and, and we're, we'll be working toward that. Um, and again, I, I didn't, the, the, the doing the police audit, I've been taking a, a step back in, in, in a lot of um, uh, conversations around what we can be doing differently until I know exactly what it is that we're not doing correctly, which is, again, every reason why we commissioned this audit to take place so that I can understand from a, from an outside point of view, what is it in the police department that are that's inefficient, that's creating gaps in services and and offering those recommendations so I can work with this community and trying to uh, be better. Um, you know, a, a lot of that, a lot of what's written in, in the report currently is what it is. It's it's allegations, not saying at all that it's not true, but when we sit down and we go over every of the concerns, um, each one is circumstantial. Um, that, But it doesn't, again, without dismissing or trying to justify public concern, certainly, you know, there are things that um, I'm very much looking forward to improving at the police department so that we're making sure that we're, you know, de-escalating these concerns from happening as much as possible. Do you have concerns, Mayor, about whether when a complaint is made by a civilian about an officer that there really is not an a honest, straightforward, thorough investigation, that there is in fact a uh, uh, process that is designed to not result in uh, charges, internal charges, I don't mean criminal charges, necessarily designed to make make it so that uh, the, the officers are not held to account? Before I came into this office, absolutely. Being in the inside and, and getting privy to the process and how these things um, uh, take shape, not anymore. Um, because, it you know, to the individual that that um, the that is in a moment of a situation, whatever it might be, um, you know, there's a lot going on, um, and when you investigate these and you look at what what transpired, how how it got to where it be, what were the outcomes and whatnot, like, you know, every situation is is circumstantial, um, and. Uh, 
when these investigations take place, not a lot of time, you know, there, there are specific outcomes that people want. And when you actually look into it step by step, it doesn't align with what they want. Um, I can't, it's hard for me, you know, and this happens all the time with, again, not just police, but public health building. People will, will get an outcome that they don't, that they weren't expecting or didn't want. Um, and will come to this office to try to, I don't know, justify or uphold uh, their desires. And uh, uh, it gets complicated because oftentimes, um, you know, I can't just go and and discipline and fire without an actual in with, you know, it's in the, where the results are inconclusive or lack of evidence. Um, you know, it, 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 it you know, it's it's particularly when it's dealing with the police department because of what's happening um, with uh, conversations with police departments across the country. It, it's, it becomes very emotional and very complex, um, but I have to make sure that we're consistent in how we're applying our policies, procedures, and laws, um, and that, you know, I'm making sure that there's the greatest accountability possible to anybody, whether if it's the police department or the public. Uh, but again, a lot of times, you know, people have a certain desire of what they want and a, con and, uh, a conclusion of a particular, uh, any particular uh, uh, investigation doesn't always um, conclude in how people want it to be because of whatever reasons are involved in that process. So it, when, when you're in the inside and you get, um, you know that level of information presented to you it it you know it's hard for me to sit there and say that you know there are things happening that however you just described it that police department is trying to uh taint well mayor mayor this is buzz um and i, I just want to piggyback on on bill's questions uh, what you're speaking about is the actual wrongdoing that's alleged and the article by dusty christensen in nepm uh, suggests that it's not only what is alleged to have happened, misconduct that was alleged by citizens, what happened to the right. complaints, the non-responsivity of the complaints, but also in the police reform bill that was passed in 2020, the article points out, that then there were reporting requirements imposed upon law enforcement agencies throughout the Commonwealth when somebody asks about such things. The original old defense was those are personnel matters we can't, let them see the light right. of day. You can't have them. Now, according to the legislation, it's no longer personnel matters. That's something the public has a right to see. And yet, Dusty Christensen reports that his request for 18 months, he hasn't been able to get any information. Sure. The request that he made pursuant to that law uh, from the Holyoke Police Department. What do you say about that? Yeah, I think it's so there there are it's it's not at all and and I understand how like Dusty and anybody can feel like the police department's trying to quote unquote uphold uh information there are internal challenges that we're having a couple of them include you know you're talking about years and years of uh of of uh, information that they were looking for so um, a member in the police department had to take time and go through all that stuff and work on that uh, yet alone, we do have a shortage in staff capacity when it comes to policing, so that takes away a time of an officer to go. And and again, the the report that's going to be um, presented soon is going to share a lot of that. 
uh, issues around uh, and, and positions that can be civilianized versus having police officers um, do such positions like uh, record access, um, for example. Uh, you know, the the record keeping for years and years, as it was asked for, somebody has to go and look for those and get it together. And you know what I mean? And, and it wasn't, it's not like it's on a cat categorical order on a shelf somewhere where it's easily you can you can pick at and just say here you go here it is it's 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 a little bit more complicated than that especially when it was um invest issues that were done before some of us were even here so folks have to go and look for that and and that that does you know add to that and again like i i, I i'm all for the changes to the law i think um it was a, a good step in the right direction as far as the commonwealth's concerned with the reforms because it's going to help improve these practices all over uh, the state uh it's just you know i don't know how other communities but any other community that might be in the same position as us here in the city of Holyoke, it's going to require us to make some internal changes uh pivots so that we can be sure that when these requests take place for example um that we have an internal system ready to the ready to deploy and not take as long as it did for this particular case. I, I couldn't completely understand how Dusty and other folks can feel like, wow, this long to get this information, they must be hiding something. It's really easy to uh, respond emotionally that way, but in reality, that's that's far from the truth. It's not at all what's going on. Well, it is time to take a break. We're gonna be back with Holyoke Mayor uh, Josh Garcia and Bill, remotely from Africa, right after these messages. Do stay with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia. Mr. Mayor, I want to do this uh, publicly, and I wish I had done it earlier in the show. I want to thank you for coming on with us. Uh, Absolutely. I, I don't think it's every public official, every mayor who if, uh, were, were the recipient of a report like this, that uh, three to four percent of all civilian complaints against the police officers in the department going over the, over the span of a decade. Um, and that public official would not necessarily come on a long form radio show to uh, have a straightforward conversation about that report. So I wanted you to know that we appreciate your availability. Absolutely. Let me go back to a couple aspects of this report. Uh, one is, and it starts, and it starts as, as a news organization. Uh, NEPM did this report. Dusty Christensen wrote it, starting with a very dramatic example of a 2016 situation in which a person alleges that the Holyoke police pulled him over with their guns drawn, yelled at him, yanked him out of his car, slammed him down on the hood, did the same thing to a few teenagers in the car. Uh, taking one of them with him, putting a knee to his back and arresting him and so on. And then the report goes on to say, well, uh, the uh, investigating officer from the Holyoke police talked to the officers um, and decided that, well, they believed the officers and that was the end of it. It was not sustained. And it seems to me that that's not a process that's designed to get to the truth. Um, and there are always these internal difficulties that a police department has when an officer of the department is investigating other officers of the department. And I'm wondering whether you think some structural changes 
will take place and need to take place with regard to how Holyoke, how the Holyoke police investigate the Holyoke police. Yeah, just responding to your 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 comment there about being on the show. I, absolutely, I, any opportunity I can to, you know, I, I, having straightforward conversations on issues, whether good or bad, is 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 critical in order to you know build on the public trust. So I I, I certainly appreciate these invitations. Uh, the the scenario that you described there again, like. That's where that's where it gets complicated uh, with investigations, no matter what it is we're talking about. In this case, we're talking about the police department. You have internal affairs that engages in an investigation or a situation. And it was the result is inconclusive because, you know, you can go and you ask, but if there's no real proof or evidence, you know, it if if I if I go forward and discipline any member there on hearsay. And it's not to say at all, believe me, it's not to dismiss or um, or justify actions or dismiss the concern. I, you know, there are um, uh, contractual obligations, personnel obligations. I can't just dis, uh, discipline somebody off of hearsay without actual uh, evidence. And I believe that that's the, the, the path or the result that came out of that particular investigation, there wasn't any real substantial uh, evidence. And these are challenges that law enforcement, even you know, as far as up as uh, you know, the district attorney's office when he's doing he or she is doing uh, their own investigations, or um, when it comes to these matters, uh, you know, their their allegations. You look into them, uh, you try to uh, find evidence uh, that align with the allegation, and if if there isn't anything, it becomes inconclusive. And that that point is dismissed. I think where my concern would be, where I would have a real concern, is if this complaint came in and we never took in the complaint. If it was just, sorry, we're, we can't take your complaint. You know what I mean? Right, no, Mayor. And, and, and again, I want to echo Bill's, um, Bill's uh, uh, statement that we right. really appreciate your being here. But I was reading the, uh, you are a member of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And in the 2023 report on police reform and racial justice, what they say is one of the big problems with community trust of its police department is when there are investigations, they're not made public. The public can't see that. So now here in Massachusetts, we have this new, right. I think the acronym is called POST, Police Officer Standards and Training Commissions, which is going to be investigating mm-hmm. these things uh, once it gets uh, its... Uh, operation going but it seems to me that we should be able to um if if two police officers say something and four civilians say something else it seems like there's more than just take the word for the police officer because they can't prove they the complainants can't prove it so to your point about the, the the reform laws like i described earlier i think that the changes are great i think it's going to allow everybody to um, have a better level of transparency when when these situations take place i i appreciate the the existence of post i think it's really going to hold folks accountable which is extremely important to me uh on this particular case um you know you're saying okay because these four people said it and these two their 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 truth should uphold the two officers that it doesn't work that way. Even with posts, um, I, I do think that these situations still exist. You have a scenario where folks were in a challenging situation and p- 
people are going to share um, their versions of the story. Again, that's not to dismiss their concern of what they were reporting. The problem is, is that people can say things and if you don't have conclusive results, it's hard to it's hard to bring forward disciplinary action that is not going to be uphold if it goes as far as to, you know, we're a civil service community or, um, uh, you know, we have unions. It's, they're, they're, it's a little bit more complex than that is what, I'm, what, is what I'm saying. It's not as straightforward as how you make it seem, although I agree with you, you would think common sense or whatever the case, but when you're dealing with situations like this, you know, there's, you're trying to navigate liability hold people accountable, but you can't just go off hearsay. There has to be um, some sort of evident upholding evidence. So that, that's where it's 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 not sexy. It's not the greatest position to be in and com easy conversations to have, especially when people are victims of any given situation. Um, but that's just the reality of laws in the United States. Mayor, the report says accurately, I'm quoting an expert, uh, in the field that nationwide only about 10% of reports by civilians are sustained and result in disciplinary action in local police departments. In this situation regarding Holyoke, there were uh, three sustained out of some 90s, it's like 3%. Um, and I'm wondering whether that data, those facts, give you pause in and of themselves, leaving aside any individual situation. It's a tiny percentage and something is saying the conclusion is that 97% uh, uh, of civilian complaints against Holyoke Police Department uh, uh, are not worthy of being credited. Does that cause you concern? Not worthy of being credited, I think, is 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 not a good way to describe any of this. Uh, complaints that come in, they are what they are. They're they're allegations, complaints, and they're different people's versions of of the truth. Um, and trying to identify the truth is the hard part uh, in all of this. And and, and sometimes you get complaints that, so, I mean, even here in the office, a public will complain about something that have happened at some department and I go in and it's some of them are far reaching. So it's not to say that 100% of complaints that come in have that are, are absolutely 100% truthful. Now I'll repeat myself. Um, I would never want to be in a, I would never encourage the public to not complain. If there is any concern, public should always bring forward complaints and um, that way we can look into them. It's just that, you know, and, and and hopefully the changes to the laws. Um, I don't know what's happening at police departments and other places. And and um, I I from what I've experienced so far, um, I, I feel strongly that um, issues in our police department are not being, uh, you know, I don't know. However, people want to describe them, uh, swept under the rug or whatever the case. Um, but hopefully these changes to the law offer a better sense of. Uh, accountability um, and and build on public trust, um, but you know these complaints, you look into them and they're not always going to be the outcome that people desire, considering the challenge. And that's where again, gets very complex um, and very uncomfortable, especially when people are going through a particular crisis or situation. Um, you know we do our best. Uh, I want to. 
you know, as long as I'm here, I'm going to make sure that we can do what we can to better close some of those gaps, which is every reason why I commissioned this audit report to be done. Very much looking forward to implement the recommendations so that we can improve and build uh, and uh, the public trust so that the community, you know, is getting what they desire and expect um, out of our police department here in the city of Hoyoke. Well, let me ask you this. One aspect of this report that struck me is you have many situations where a civilian says this happened. I following things should never have happened. No officer should have ever treated me like that. No officer should have used that kind of brutality or force against me. And then the officer says, no, I didn't. And this is why whatever I did, I was justified in doing. It seems to me that if there were objective evidence, uh, more objective evidence like uh, cruiser cams or body cams, uh, mm. and so we had a video record, that might help. Um, and or if there was someone within the police department who was not a member of the police department actually doing the investigation, do you see uh, structural reforms like that in the offing? And by the way, do uh, police officers in uh, Holyoke have uh, body cams? Right now, no, but uh, where we talked about it, um, uh, the administration at the police, the administration as well as from what I understand, um, the police officers welcome it. Um, uh, you know, and, and there are actually, we're just having this conversation a couple of days uh, last week, you know, talking about what we need to do internally to prepare for management of the availability of cameras, um, uh, IT wise, but um, uh, it's certainly on the table and, and something that people are um, leaning favorably towards. We just gotta, um, you know, prepare for making sure that we have the internal capacity to uh, manage um, its its availability. Um, but yeah, cruiser cams or, or uh, body cams, um, any uh, type of video evidence recordings obviously are the best forms of you know getting closer to a truth and then also implementing an internal expectation and standard um, uh, when it, between officers um, to make sure that um, you know when internal investigations happening and there are officer witnesses uh, to be open and, and honest and, and comfortable with telling the truth um, uh, so you know so there's certainly those tools available that we're that I'm you know that we're all exploring that we're talking about um, at the same time trying to you know further implement other ideas um, to be sure that you know that we're doing what we can on our end to eliminate these these uh, concerns that that appear from time to time. Well. Mayor Joshua Garcia of Holyoke, I want to thank you for taking this time. We've spent a lot of time on this one issue today, and I appreciate your focusing on it with us. Many other things to ask you about. So much going on in the city of Holyoke, much of it really good, which we will take up with you next month. We want to appreciate your being with us every month on Mayor's Monday. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mayor. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show, Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. He is on the board of directors and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association. He is the author of numerous, numerous books, articles, and 
uh, other in other publications. And we are so grateful that we have had him with us throughout this war in Ukraine and preceding the award to have his perspective and insight. First, before we get back to the war in Ukraine and what Russia has been doing and the fighting that is intensifying there, I know you have spent a lot of time studying and being uh, not only conversant but expert on the questions of China's foreign policy. Uh, we have read a lot about the balloon that came over the United States, was shot down over the East Coast, and we have read a lot about this unidentified flying object, which this time really is an unidentified flying object over Alaska that was shot down. There have been reports, Michael, that China's uh, uh, surveillance balloons have been uh, over some 40 countries. They've been over the United States before. They happened a number of times, apparently, during the Trump administration, and we weren't told about it. What is going on with China? What is the information that that government is seeking? Why does it want it? So uh, to begin with, uh, China has now claimed that the U.S. has sent balloons over its territory. I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, what I think we can surmise is that both the U.S. and China and Russia as well have been using all kinds of means of surveillance, balloons, satellites, high-flying aircraft like the U-2 that the U.S. still uses back from the Cold War days. All of these countries are using whatever means of surveillance they can get their hands on to spy on the other countries' military capabilities to gauge their capabilities. Uh, so this is going on all the time. The U.S. has electronic surveillance planes flying up and down the coast of China every day, and there have been periodic entanglements with Chinese planes. So we can assume that the Chinese are using whatever means they have to gather intelligence on the United States. That's the background. Uh, so what specifically is going on is hard to tell at this point, but I guess the Chinese are trying to collect uh, intelligence data on US military capabilities of various sorts. The way, what, the way you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, the way you phrase this, uh, it really says to me, uh, Newman, you should take a step back on this. This may not be a big deal at all. It's fascinating and interesting because nothing like a UFO sighting to get people, uh, uh, get, their, get them excited and uh, concerned. But maybe this is not a big deal. Is, is, that, is that kind of what you're telling us? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's part of a pattern that's been going on for a long time. That's the background. The foreground is that tensions between the US and China have been heating up in recent months, particularly around the issue of Taiwan. So uh, this event uh, ha has inflamed those tensions, particularly in Congress. So uh, Mr. Biden, President Biden, was in a very difficult position when this sighting occurred because uh, he, he couldn't ignore it, and when people in Congress heard about it, especially the Republicans, but not only, he was under immense pressure to do something, to show that the U.S. is going to stand up to China and not let them get away with anything. So the heat 
on him, the pressure on him to do something became very great and so turned this into a major international event. And it has deep consequences because uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken canceled his visit to Beijing, which was to occur this past weekend. And that was an important meeting because it was to talk about ways to calm down the tensions between the US and China, especially over Taiwan. So uh, it's a double whammy. Not only has the event, balloon event, increased tensions, but it's also canceled talks to lower tensions. So now we're in a very bad situation, to put it mildly. Well, one reason we're in a bad situation is because there doesn't seem to be an off-ramp for the confrontation that is building between Taiwan, the Chinese government, and the United States. And Biden has said more explicitly than previous administrations have, if China attacks Taiwan, we're going to get involved militarily and we could be in war with China. And that looks like something that is on the horizon potentially within the next three years. Do you see that potential for war? Yes, very, very high risk of war. Uh, not because either side is going to choose to start a war. I don't think President Xi of China will decide, you know, wake up tomorrow or the next day and say, okay, today's the day we're going to invade Taiwan. But I think that both sides are now in a position where their leaders, Biden on our side and President Xi on the other side, are under extreme domestic political pressure to show toughness, to flex muscles, to show that we're not going to be the side that's going to back down. We, we saw that with Biden in the balloon. He can't back down. And the same thing is true of Xi in China. He can't back down. So right now there, there is a U.S. naval exercise in the South China Sea. We do this all the time around Taiwan. China also sends its planes in the air around Taiwan all the time. Sooner or later, uh, there's going to be a clash. Somebody is going to shoot down uh, the other side's air, aircraft. That could happen tomorrow. And, and be, in the environment we're in, that could lead to rapid unintended escalation. So it's this, this posturing that's the risk. If I may, Michael, this is Buzz Eisenberg. Um, what is the off-ramp? If neither side can back down, do you have a recommendation of how leaders who get in these positions frequently, historically, how do they, how do they get out of them without backing down? Yeah, this is a hard one. Now, we keep talking about U.S. and China over Taiwan, and Taiwan should have a vote in this discussion because any war over Taiwan is probably, whoever wins, in quotation marks, wins, uh, whoever wins, uh, Taiwan is probably going to look like what Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine looks like, a leveled a ruin of, of, of destroyed buildings because uh, the war will take place there and most of their people will be homeless or, or dead. So, uh, so the Taiwanese have a vote in this and, and I think the off-ramp is uh, some effort 
uh, by uh, Taiwanese government. There's going to be elections coming up next year, uh, possibly saying uh, we don't want to be trapped in this. We want some kind of arrangement with China and the US uh, that allows us to keep some degree of autonomy, but not to be used as a uh, as a punching bag by both sides. We are speaking with Michael Clare. He is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He's the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. He is on the board of directors and a senior visiting fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C. We're going to take a quick break. We have to do that right now. When we come back, I want to ask Professor Clare what is happening in Ukraine and what is likely to happen next. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Hampshire College Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, Michael Clare. I know I keep promising our listeners we're going to talk about Ukraine, and we will. But while we were together during the break, we continued our conversation about uh, Taiwan and China. Two topics that we touched on, which I would like you to share uh, briefly, if you would, please, Michael Clare. Uh, with our listeners, what what you said. One was about the surveillance balloon. Why did China do it now? And the second topic was the basis for this potential conflagration, historical conflagration between China. What back when I was growing up was called mainland China and Taiwan. So if you could briefly bring our listeners in on that conversation, and then I'm going to ask you about Ukraine. Well, we were talking about two things. What lies behind the tension over Taiwan? And I could say briefly uh, is that China long has claimed that Taiwan is part of its national territory and intends one way or the other to see that Taiwan is returned to the motherland uh, and by any means necessary, including the use of force. In the United States, there's a growing feeling that Taiwan must never be returned to China that it's part of the Western defense uh, uh, screen that that protects the Pacific from Chinese expansion. So th that's a geopolitical clash that's very hard to to cross. Um, and it's it's a lot like Ukraine increasingly being seen as a, a you know an unacceptable uh, uncrossable divide between the West and Russia. Go back to the balloon for us. Why now? That's the really interesting question, Bill. Uh, my guess is that 10 years ago, President Xi told some obscure group in the Chinese military to use whatever means they could to spy on US military defenses and forgot about it. And nobody has been paying attention to this balloon group ever since. And they've been building bigger and bigger balloons and sending them up periodically without anybody knowing about it, including the president of China. And uh, they were caught uh, flat-footed by this event. And I, I think it's a big scandal because I don't think they would have allowed, she and the top leadership would have allowed that to occur on the eve of a very important visit by the U.S. Secretary of State. So this, to me, uh, shows that there's some leadership problems in China. Michael, in a few minutes, and we really have about three minutes left, tell us what is happening in Ukraine. What do you see happening militarily and politically there in the next few weeks or months? 
Okay, uh, three minutes. Well, the, the, the basic story is that there are two offensives gearing up, a Russian offensive and a Ukrainian offensive, but at two different timelines. The Russian offensive is just getting started in the Donbass region of Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. Uh, the Russian offensive appears aimed to throw all Ukrainian forces out of those two provinces, which Russia claims is part of Russian territory. And they appear to be using mass force of just throw as many bodies as they possibly can into the fight, as many tanks and artillery, and just batter the Ukrainians into submission. Uh, the other offensive the, on the Ukrainian side is just gearing up, and that will depend on the delivery of Western weapons which will not come for another month or so. So for now, uh, the main play is the Russian offensive and it's battering away. Hundreds of people, thousands perhaps are dying every day and it's a meat grinder. And the question is, can the Ukrainians defensive forces hold out long enough, uh, uh, hold off the Russian offensive long enough uh, for their own offensive to begin. And we don't know the answer to that question, but clearly uh, President Putin is hoping that by just throwing as many Russian men, bodies uh, against Ukrainian lines as possible, he's gonna, he's gonna break them. And um, I don't think that will happen, but, but that's, what's, that's what they're trying. And He's sacrificing a lot of men's lives, and, and I think it's pathetic and sad and criminal. Okay, 45 seconds. For the purpose of what, holding the land, holding the, holding the territory, it's, he's devastating the country. He's turning it into rubble. What's the point? Because he doesn't believe Ukraine exists as a country, and he doesn't care if it's destroyed. And he figures eventually there'll be negotiations, there will be a ceasefire somewhere, and he wants what remains of Ukraine to, to be a, a pile of rubble that, that uh, will not be a country worth keeping anymore. That's, that's his vision. We are going to leave it there. We'll be back a little more with Professor Michael Clare in the coming weeks for sure. Michael Clare, thanks so much for your time and insights. We are deeply in your debt. Sure thing, Bill and Buzz. Thank you, Professor. We're going to be back. We're going to take a look behind the curtain. We always talk to the members of our delegation, the terrific representatives and senators we have representing us, but there are legislative aides and district directors standing behind them. Let's look behind the curtains right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our show. This is Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we're very lucky. Uh, we have with us in studio um, a couple of people who helped to get it done. We have uh, Representative Natalie Blaze, legislative aide, Corinne Coriat, and we have Senator Joe Comerford's district director, Elena Cohen, 
Hello, welcome to both of you. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Sure. So let me start. Um, let me start with you, Corinne. You and I have an email relationship. We do. Usually about arranging for <laughs> your uh, boss. I guess I can call Natalie yeah, Blay. My boss woman. Yeah, your boss woman <laughs> to to come on the show and and other things that we've had uh, with respect to the town that I live in. But it's so nice to meet you finally. I guess. Can you give us a brief summary of what brought you to this job? It's yeah. a job we're all interested in hearing about, but tell us a little bit about your background, Corinne Coriette. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having us. Um, I grew up in Western Mass. I'm from Williamsburg, and I grew up in a pretty politically active family, so I was always oriented towards politics. And uh, in college, I went to Clark University and pursued a degree in political science, and then did some uh, internships. I interned in Congressman McGovern's office in Worcester. And uh, then during the pandemic, I worked on uh, Senator Markey's campaign for re-election, uh, where I met the lovely Kristen Ellico, who is very central to Western mass politics, and um, worked with her there. And when I graduated college, um, she connected me with Natalie, who happened to have an opening in her office and was just really lucky that uh, it all kind of fell into place. And It fell I into was, place, the circle kind of closed because yeah. uh, Natalie Blay did the same kind of work for Representative McGovern that yep. you're doing for Natalie Blay. Yeah, and I also did casework in Congressman McGovern's office. Uh and how about, how about you? Um, you work uh, with Senator Joe Comerford, District Director Elena Cohen. How did you come to this work? Yeah, so I um, I grew up also grew up in Western Mass. I'm from Northampton, and I graduated college from I went to Mount Holyoke, so I stayed local, and then I moved to New York City uh, after graduating, and I was in New York for about eight years. And uh, during that time, I worked for a lot of great nonprofits, um, but I, I knew I was interested in doing work that was sort of more, more directly tied to the nuts and bolts issues of people's lives. Um, and I went to social work school in New York City, um, so I have a degree from Hunter um, in uh, community organizing focused social work, so more macro social work. And during, during well, it, the time I was in social work school, uh, Trump was elected, and I was doing an internship um, where I had the opportunity to hear Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City uh, speak to a group of people, I think it was maybe two days after the election or you know the following week, but really, really close, and we were all reeling. And he just said, uh, we, we see you to, to many different groups. He said, you know, immigrants, we're here to protect you. Queer people, you know, we're here. And it was, it was this, this voice of support from local government at a time when many of us didn't feel supported <laughs> at a national level. And I think it was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I see it now as sort of a turning point of, of seeing the power of local government. Government was not something I saw myself <laughs> doing. Um, I was more interested in sort of exerting pressure from outside <laughs> on government. And it was, um, but it, it really spoke to me in that moment. And I was interested in in doing, it became interested in doing work in local government. And the other piece is that I, I've known Joe um, since I was in high school, actually. So Senator Joe Comerford. Senator Joe Comerford. <laughs> um, so, so I, uh, sh and she was elected not too long after that, and I approached her about 
about working for her, and I moved back to Western Mass uh, and to do that. we're glad that you did. So, Corinne, what do you do as a legislative aide for Representative Natalie Blay? What are your responsibilities? Well, um, as a legislative aide in the House, most most members only have one staff person, at least to begin with. So I have my hand in pretty much everything, which is really exciting and such an educational experience, but also a lot of work. Well, it's also um, a lot of responsibility for somebody two years yeah, out of college. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I take it very seriously and feel that great responsibility. Um, but, you know, my my primary roles are to do constituent casework, which is certainly um, the most connected to constituents, I think, that I feel, which is really special and difficult um, to help people with issues that are coming up in their daily lives that have to do with state agencies. Um, I also do our legislation, so tracking that legislation, moving things from committee to committee as po- as we as fast as possible, as you know, effectively as possible. Um, I do all of our home rule petitions primarily, which is about 20 petitions from all of our communities, which takes more time than you'd think. <laughs> and um, I do all of the administrative side of things. So I schedule Natalie, I organize all of our files and our platforms, and I go through all of our emails and flag things. And um, I try to focus my ever-inspired boss who has so many ideas on on how to prioritize um, all the work that we're doing, uh, which is, you know, all important but needs uh, kind of that structure sometimes. Bill, you're joining us remotely. You wanted to talk about constituent services. Uh, yeah, I'd like to know, I would like to know what you mean by constituent services. Yeah. What kind of things do, 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 uh, uh, constituents call and say, I need help with this. And and how can you and how are you helpful to them? Yeah. Let's start with Corinne. We'll go back to Elena right after this. So Elena and I have both done constituent casework and we both do district issues as well. I guess that's the other piece that I, I left out is that um, cities and towns also bring issues to us and sometimes they're connected. Um, so constituent casework is typically like unemployment, people who are filing for unemployment and are having trouble with their applications online, not being able to connect with um, staff at the agency directly. We are we act as liaisons and advocates for those people to try to get their claims resolved. Getting your license if you so have you issues. So call, you call the division uh, yep. of unemployment insurance and you say, I am the A, what do you say? I say, hi, Barbara. <laughs> I hope you're having a really, really great day. Can you please help me with X, Y, Z issue? So just developing those relationships with folks in the agencies, I think, is like the primary piece of it. To know that there is, you know, trust and, um, you know, kind of, I, I think that sometimes they're adversaries, but we really like try, I, I try to approach it in a way that we really are working together to help people in partnership. Um, so I will say, you know, Here's this person's information. Here's the issue they're having. Can you please be in touch with them directly? A lot of times people are having communication issues and they just need to have a phone call um, to clear up an issue that they're having. And we do the same thing on the district issue side uh, with different agencies like Elena and I have been working on hydro relicensing for First Light for over like two, three years now, long, long time, and work with... uh, the EEA on that primarily. The EEA? Environmental Affairs. 
So, um, well, let's go back to constituent services a little bit. Uh, Elena Cohen, you as district director for Senator Joe Comerford, what do you do for constituent services? Sure. So um, we, we've shifted our, our structure a little bit. So we now have my colleague Rachel in our Boston office handles. She's our director of constituent service. So she really, at this point, manages constituent services. But especially during the pandemic, we had three staff members doing constituent service. We're a team, unlike, um, unlike Corinne, who's really a, a one-woman office um, with, with the representative, we um, have five staff members. Um, I, have, I am one of them. So we share, share responsibilities between us. Um, I like to think of constituent service really as cutting through bureaucracy for people. So often people come to us as a last resort. They've mm -hmm. been on the phone. They've been trying to navigate navigate constituent service online or you know navigate these state agencies online and um then they they reach out to our office as as their sort of last hope yeah. um so we have have contacts at every agency and like corinne said we develop relationships with them hello barbara are we having a good day <laughs> yeah yeah uh and and uh they're they're those relationships are vital because without those people we are not able to help as effectively yeah and what else does the district director do? So my work is primarily about our cities and towns. So our district is 25 towns in Western Mass, and I am based out here where the rest of our team is based in Boston. So I'm really the person on the ground. So we... We, we are, I'm currently arranging for Joe to visit, uh, Senator Comerford, to visit all of the uh, select boards in our district, so setting up those meetings. Um, similar to Corinne, you know, we, we do a lot of administrative work. There's, there's a range of, you know, there, there's sort of nothing too small <laughs> in some ways. that Fix the copier and, uh, right. Yeah. Um, that glorious work. Yeah. A and... Um, and really, it's also developing relationships with municipal officials, too, and just yeah. understanding, uh, making sure they know that we're there to support them and making sure that we're as tuned in as possible to what's going on in So, Elena Cohen, what about this complex legislation that always comes out of Senator Comerford's office? <laughs> and, I, you know, I know about um, uh, what happens in D.C. where there are actually drafting committees that are available to every representative and senator to sort of get their bills in order. It's a little bit less. Uh, the resources are a little bit less in the, the state house, aren't they? Yeah, I, th I think one of the things that that I find most powerful about our legislation is a lot of it comes directly from constituents. So we hear about an idea from someone, and and we do some research and we follow it. And I could use an example right here. Yeah, give so, us an example. So one example that actually comes from our casework. Um, so I, I took a call, I think it was in 2019, from a constituent who was really distraught because a family member uh, had, pa had passed away very suddenly, and their home, uh, the family home, was being taken by MassHealth um, to pay for, uh, to for, pay for services. Right. And this is not something I had ever heard of. Um, it's something other members of our team had never heard of. And... Uh, it was. It's basically the a practice that um, mass health benefits are basically treated treated like a loan rather than a benefit where you know, like food stamps, you know, SNAP benefits. You don't have. You're not expected to repay those benefits uh, after you use them. But so, who drafts the actual legislation to remedy that problem? So, well, just to give a, a few more details, it's oh, actually sure. it's a it's an issue 
that's a federal issue. But Massachusetts actually goes beyond what the federal minimum is. And so once we understood that better, um, our legislative director, Brian Rossman, does a lot of our legislative drafting. He's a lawyer. Um, and that background is obviously super helpful. Um, but I, In writing laws? I would think so. <laughs> um, but there's a lot... Um, you know, we have we have many many interns and fellows who are often working to support our office. Um, their work is vital, and uh, some of our colleagues also help with drafting. You know, it's it's a really a team effort, and that's that's something I would emphasize too. And there's a lot of collaboration between our two offices. We work very yes. very closely with Representative Blaze's office. Corinne and I are in touch on an almost daily basis. I think yeah. not an exaggeration. Um, so Corinne Correa, let me ask you about that. It mm -hmm. seems a lot of us feel very fortunate that we have the delegation that we do in in this region. How much collaboration, Elena's saying a lot, with, yeah. between the two of you, but with the other representatives in this region, the other senators in this region? Yeah. I, I mean, across the board, a lot of collaboration. I think that we're really lucky to have strong representatives, strong senators, but also really strong teams out in Western Mass, both people who are based in Western Mass itself and in Boston. So, you know, I really end up being in Boston and Western Mass, even though I live in Western Mass. I, I go into the State House with Natalie quite a lot and um, work with a lot of my colleagues. Some of my good friends, um, Senator um, Representative Pignatelli Stafford, Julia Murphy, and I uh, worked on the Markey campaign together and came into the State House at a very similar time and, um, you know, work on hemp legislation together now. Um, I think that we support each other in lots of different ways. So, you know, our offices, because we are overlapping in terms of districts, we share casework and district issues. Whereas, um, you know, with other representatives, we may uh, share legislation. Um, but really just so lucky to work with so many very smart, driven, um, good good people in the staff level and and at the member level. Well, we're peeking behind the curtain of what happens with our with our representatives, uh, the people who actually run the office who are actually there in the trenches. And I'm kind of like a love fest going on in this studio. We're going to be back with Corinne Couriat, the legislative aide for Representative Natalie Blay, and with Joe Comerford's district director, Elena Cohen, right after these messages. Stay with us. If you ever find yourself lost in the dark and you can't see, I'll be the light to guide you. Find out what we're made. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with District Director for Senator Joe Comer for uh, Elena Cohen and with Natalie Blay, First Franklin's representative, uh, her legislative aide, Corinne Coriat. So, Bill, you had questions of our uh, guests. Here's what I want to know, and I would love for our listeners to know. You've described how you can navigate the bureaucracy. That's terrific. When can and when can't you be helpful when someone has a problem with uh, the unemployment office or the uh, uh, registry of motor vehicles or uh, an environmental agency? What can you do? How can you be helpful? And when is it not appropriate for you to be helpful? 
Um, or to intervene. Yeah, thank you, Bill. It's a really good, important question. We can be most helpful when someone has an issue with a state agency. Um, that seems like the, the sort of base level. We're, we're state, uh, state legislative offices. We have a direct line to state agencies. So if someone has an issue with the RMV, um, or Registry of Motor Vehicles. The thank you. The Registry of Motor Vehicles, um, Mass Health, the Health Connector. Those are some of the unemployment, as Corinne said earlier. Those are those are often the common agencies we work with. But even more unusual agencies, people don't think of like the State Retirement Board. Um, you know, we can we can help really with a lot of those entities. And in terms of the specific types of issues, we we can. You know, it varies. It's hard to generalize completely about, but you know, if someone is 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 not hearing back, you know, communication breakdowns is is a really common one, as I think we're all probably familiar <laughs> from experience, um, and and also, um, you know, th th those are those are sort of broad broad strokes of where we can be useful. If if someone has gotten a lawyer involved already, that's an instance where we really can't help. <laughs> you know, if, a, if, a, if someone has a lawyer and that lawyer is in touch with the state agency's lawyer, there really isn't any room for us to get involved. So th that's one area where we, we sort of have to draw the line and say, sorry, you've already <laughs> taken this other route, we can't help. Um, other areas where we are less helpful, um, housing wait lists, we get those kinds of calls and it's really painful. We would. We would love to be more able to help with housing um, in bigger ways than we can. We can certainly work to change state policy around housing. We can connect people with local agencies. We do a lot of connecting. Um, that's certainly another thing we do. Also, sometimes people will call us with federal issues. I think there's um, often not, it's very confusing. You know, where do I go when I need help with, with an issue? It, it, you may not know if you can go to um, a, state, a state or a federal. So we can, we can make those connections. Uh, Corrine Coriat, do you have anything to add to Bill's question with respect to constituents? How do they get in touch? What type of issues should they be talking about? Yeah, I mean, I will say, uh, echo definitely all of Elena's comments, but I will also say that if you're not sure and you think it might be something we can help you with, just give us a call. Worst case scenario, we'll give you a different resource that you can reach out to or a connection at a local agency that can connect you with the right person. Um, give us a call. Shoot us an email. All of our contact information is all over our boss's social media, our websites. Um, we want to be as accessible as possible. Um, we want to be able to help as many people as possible. We also hold office hours in um, our district to have Folks just come in and, and talk to us about what's going on, um, which will also be posted on our website and on social media. Um, if folks aren't sure who their representative and senators are, how do they find out, Corinne? Yeah. So we uh, have a website called malegislature.gov, which has every representative, every piece of legislation, anything that you really want to know about the legislature. And there's a tool on that website called Find My Legislature where you can just type in your address or legislator. <laughs> you can type in your address and it will pop up with your senator and your representative. So Corinne Corriette, uh, in the couple minutes that we have left, you mentioned home rule. What is home rule and what type of things does Natalie do when yeah. there's a home rule issue? So um, home rule petitions are requests from our 18 communities um, that need to petition something through the general court to 
make a change in their own community. So some of the common ones that we do are employment extensions for fire and police officers after the age of 65, um, liquor licenses, additional liquor licenses for towns. Let's see, what else have we done? We, we Our offices share a lot of these, um, and they're... They go through a similar process to a regular piece of legislation, um, but typically are treated a little bit differently because they are requests of of municipalities. They're not um, like state level changes. So uh, everybody tries to work together, I think, to to get everything done as quickly as possible to to make those changes for our our local communities. Well, finally, I'll throw this to you, Elena Cohen, and it could be to either one of you because both of your boss ladies, as you said, are both um, just so active in so many arenas, but there's so many competing needs for legislative assistance. Um, and uh, how, how does a Senator Joe Comerford, in your case, prioritize? Well, there's this education problem, there's this highway problem, there's police problem. How, how do, are there conversations in the whole staff taking part in to determine where Joe Comerford should focus this session? Yeah, it's a really good, big question. <laughs> um, and I know we don't have that much time left, but I think that our team works very collaboratively um, in terms of, you know, like Joe, Joe always, the senator always wants to hear our ideas. And, um, and she also listens very deeply to her constituents. Um, and so if there's, if there's ideas she's hearing about from across the district, or you know, we're seeing a lot of needs around school funding, or you know, like those might be issues that would rise to the top. And there's also it's sort of a, a back and forth with what's what the priorities are at the state level as well. So mm -hmm. the Senate, um, the Senate president, also has her own priorities, and there's sort of a, a marrying of those two. Well, this is Dan. I had a question for both of you. If a young woman were to approach you and say, uh, "I don't know what I want to do, but..." Um, considering being a legislative aide, what would you tell her? Corinne. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, do it. I think that any, you know, any kind of, like, first job like this is for me where you can get into so many different uh, arenas of policy and, and really learn so much in, in a more general sense and also a more specific sense. I mean, the things that we know now are insane. Um, it's it's such a good learning opportunity. And if you're able to find someone like either of our bosses who are so caring and strong and smart, who will really take you under their wing and teach you how uh, how to how to work in this industry and 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 try to do do good, you're you're going in the right direction. How about you, Elena? Now that we know Dan Torres wants to stop being a producer at WHO. Got me. And that was it. <laughs> We're always looking for interns. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say, Elena? I think, you know, these, we, we, we say that we're generalists in these jobs. You know, we, we answer the phone. We have no idea what the person on the other end might be calling about. And it really feels like it could be anything under the sun. And some days that's pretty daunting. Other days, you know, it's we're learning new things all the time, yeah. and that's not something you can say in every job. And I really am, am very, I really value that a lot. Incredible! There you go, Dan. All right, I'm leaving, Buzz. All right, because <laughs> of you. <laughs> um, well, during the break, I'm going to change. Is there a different? Let me. Let, let we we got to go. Question. We'll be right back. Hold on. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Buzz Eisenberg, and we are back. Hi, Bill. Buzz. So we are back with Writer's Block with Megan Zinn, and who is our guest today? Hi, our guest is Madden Aaliyah. Uh, welcome, Madden. Thank you. Uh, Madden is the owner of Bookends, the new-ish owner of Bookends, <laughs> which is a used bookstore in Florence. Um, Madden's from Connecticut, and she's also in the MF, English MFA program at UMass Amherst, and she teaches creative writing, and she plays guitar in a string band called the Holy Oaks, which Certainly. I love. Um, so, Madden, you took over, you, you purchased um, bookends in October, November, is that correct? Yeah, I signed, signed the purchase agreement on Halloween. Oh, that's very um, Scary. evocative. Yeah. Um, I love that. <laughs> Everything um, changed that Halloween. <laughs> Halloween's an important, <laughs> uh, important day, so that makes sense. Um, so tell us about the decision, the process of, of purchasing bookends. Oh, gosh, well, I love books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, I had seen it come up on a Facebook post that someone sent to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have long cons- had long considered starting a bookstore after I left graduate school. I thought I would leave Northampton, leave the Valley, go somewhere else, start one from scratch, and kind of go on my merry way. And then I started to realize how difficult that would be. Mm-hmm. And around that time, which was, you know, honestly a little earlier than I anticipated mm-hmm. acquiring a bookstore, if at all, I saw bookends come up for sale, and I had lived down the street. I lived on Maple Street for several years and had shopped there, and I thought it was just such a wonderful, special, singular store. Yeah, I mean, the, for the space is so incredible. The books were so incredible. I think Ed and Gray, both the previous owners, really just made it a very, very special place. And so I thought, well, I always liked that place. And I was going to do this anyway, and mm-hmm. maybe it's a little sooner than I planned, but uh, it, it felt right. Yeah, yeah. What was your experience in bookstores leading up to this? So I had worked at Gray Matter mm-hmm. for a while. Um, I had also sold books on my own. Mm. Uh, for mm-hmm. a long time, I've been really interested in uh, not only books as a, a reader and a person who touches them, because I think the tactile experience oh, yes. of the books is so important, but... I've always been very interested in the antique market and mm-hmm. in scavenger hunts mm-hmm. of finding things to sell them to people or tracking down things for your own collections, helping people stage things. I've worked in Brimfield and okay. helped antique mm-hmm. dealers before and would go to book sales with my dad and antique fairs with my dad. And the the social and uh, experiential nature of it yeah. is so fun. It's mm-hmm. so exciting. You get to drive around and find things <laughs> and then <laughs> a big treasure hunt. Yeah. connect them to people. Mm-hmm. And and so I did a lot of kind of spot things that related to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So how how have you have you and plan to change the store? Um, not, not that you're going to make wholesale changes, I assume, <laughs> but um, what, what kind of differences are you going to um, enact? Well, in many ways, it stayed the same. I've I've moved some sections around. Like there were DVDs from the DVD rental mm-hmm. up by the counter, and I thought, well, those don't need to be in such an important space, so I moved them elsewhere. Um, what's incredible about bookends is there's so much space. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's been really great because I don't see, you know, cutting down inventory, which is mm-hmm. great because, you know, everybody wants something different. 
so at the same time, I can accommodate, you know, a certain type of person who wants to come in and, and find books that are maybe less interesting to me personally, mm-hmm. but are I believe are, is an yeah. important thing mm-hmm. to be able to right. provide and really build out the inventory that I'm interested in. So, like, we've built so much more um, academic books, mm-hmm. uh, books about political economy, yeah. leftist thought, revolutionary mm-hmm. studies, queer theory, things that are honestly pretty hard to find in mm-hmm. bookstores. Yeah, uh, particularly particularly used bookstores. For sure, yeah. for sure. But it's kind of awesome. Well, it's not kind of awesome. It's <laughs> awesome because all it takes is you get a good lot of books and then the people who come in to buy them say, well, you can you can buy my old books. And so all of a sudden you go from this little dinky pile of Marxist books that you're just hoping that people find and appreciate yeah. to... A, a community that just rallies and brings you all of their books and, oh, and things just expound and it's such a harmonious relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's lovely. Uh, my guest is Madden Alia and she's the owner of Bookends in Florence. Um, and you, you, I think they've done events in the past in the store, but you, I think, are increasing that a bit or broadening yes. that? Yeah, we've broadened well, the I, events. I'd like to ask a question. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Jump in, Bill. Oh, okay. So um, I... Bill, you're going in and out. Ah, okay. So we'll go back to Megan's We'll go back question. to, yeah. Um, the t- you're telling us about the events in the store. Yeah, so we've kind of broadened the the events to have some music here and there, just some social events, uh, like for various communities regularly, and um, that kind of dovetail with the interests mm-hmm. of the store, yeah. right? We have queer meetups, we have, you know, reading groups planned, and we have fairly frequent open mics as well. Okay. So people Good. will come in. I have a friend who comes and hosts a poetry open mic and uh, just little things, fun things like tomorrow for mm-hmm. Valentine's yes. Day, we have a sonnet party. So yeah. There's a party nice. where you can bring, well, it's not just sonnets, it's sonnets, odes, and other unspecified love poems. Oh, wonderful. So we're going to have that tomorrow where people can bring them and read them and is it going to be all original, or will some people be reading some of Shakespeare? Or, oh, it's or whatever you whatever want, they it want to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I love when people read poetry and when people read things and present things that they haven't written because I think there's such a wonderful enthusiasm to that too. So that always gets me. So I'm glad we'll see some of that tomorrow. I, I wanted to ask you, and this might be what Bill was trying. Mm-hmm. Bill is with us remotely, and somehow his signal got lost. Uh, but Madden, uh, Alea, there's much talk. Well, every time Bill interviews an author. He ends it by saying you could get that book at your independent bookstore. Mm-hmm. We're always concerned about people who go online and they go to Amazon and they order from those kinds of things. What does the independent bookshop offer that you can't get? Uh, I guess we're going to relive uh, You Got Mail. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a depressing movie. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, I, I think that... There's obviously, you know, the the standard milk toast answers of like you support your community. It's people you know. Uh, I also think that it's an interesting and fraught question because there's so many different ways to uh, quantify what an independent bookstore is. Because I think we have this conversation and say, well, what's an independent bookstore versus Amazon, and pose them as kind of diametrically mm-hmm. opposed. When the reality is actually that a lot of independent bookstores deal heavily through Amazon which is something that I I understand because it's a 
it is what it is. Right. And I've also personally divested from, so mm-hmm. like I don't, I straight mm-hmm. up don't deal through Amazon mm-hmm. at all because I don't understand participating in a system that is, has a vested interest in putting yeah, to my story out of business. Interest. Yeah, um, you're here. So it's, oh, what was that? It's good noise. Anyway, right, never mind, never mind. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that you offer, you know, if you would just buy something online, you're not making friends. <laughs> as silly as it sounds, but I I see so many wonderful communities converge in the store. Uh, you can come back. You have a place to go. Even if you're buying through the mail, you have, it's really community access. I mean, also, our prices often undercut Amazon because <laughs> that's something that the yeah. previous owner did where mm-hmm. if you order a new book, um, you get it at a discount from the suggested retail price, which often undercuts the standard Amazon pricing. So you can actually save a lot of money. Uh, I think when we actually, it's less about maybe what the independent bookstore offers and what does Amazon offer that mm-hmm. we don't. Yeah. Often it's the sense of immediacy, mm-hmm. which if you need to read a book that urgently, go to the library. Go to the library or use your, use your electronic um, library yeah. card and, and get it immediately. Um, and I think that that, at the end of the day, it really does just come down to immediacy. So if you can wait a couple of days for a book, you can have a better experience in a lot of ways. Yeah. We're going to take a break. This is Writer's Block with Megan Zinn, and her guest today is Madden Alea, the owner of Bookends in Florence. We're going to be right back, talk more about Bookends right after these messages. Stay with us. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we're back with Writer's Block. This is Megan Zinn. And my guest is Madden Aaliyah, the owner of Bookends. And we know that it's in Florence. We've said that. But tell us um, specifically where it is. And tell us a little bit about the history. This place um, has been around for a while. And, and that whole block has a, has a strong history in Florence. For sure, yeah. It's in the Parsons Block, which mm-hmm. is the big green building, the two-story one right on the intersection of Maple and Main at 80 Maple Street. And um, it's been there for quite some time. The store started at what is now Collective Copies in Florence oh, on Main okay. Street. Yeah, mm-hmm. at Shanahan Street. And I had it at three or four floors. It was a big, big store. And then moved to where it is now, which has been both a floral shop, which we can see there's a transom window with mm-hmm. flowers on yeah. it, mm-hmm. and a bowling alley. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was a one-lane bowling alley. Unclear if it was Candlepin or Standard Bowling. If anyone knows, I would love to know. <laughs> so Probably Candlepin around here. That's I fantastic. bet, yeah. And so there's a, this carved out area in the back with these two brick arches that's under the parking lot and a hollow floor which is phenomenal if you ever want to sing down there because it's oh, fantastic amazing. acoustics. Yeah, acoustics. But it was owned by Ed Shanahan initially, who mm-hmm. was the editor of the Hampshire Gazette. All right. Mm-hmm. And then it sold to a longtime employee named Gray Angel, who actually both of them still come into the store oh, good. Uh, quite often. I saw Ed the other day. Gray stops in sometimes mm-hmm. to burn CDs and we talk about music and stuff. So... It's a lovely it's, nod of support. Yeah, it's really nice to have both of the previous owners around and to have a rapport for them. Um, and it's it's wonderful that they want to be a part of the store and that they're, yeah. you know, like we were talking about earlier with community, it's fantastic to see that continue. And they've just been so gracious and kind and, and excited as mm-hmm. I've taken it mm-hmm. over. It, it's like a little family. Oh, it's wonderful. And Bill, you had a question, I think. Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more about what's in the store. 
how many volumes are there? How do you know what books to buy? I think the other part of the question was how to find them. Yeah. Or like how to know. Um, there is, I, I haven't counted them, full disclosure, but there's probably 40 or 50,000 books in the store at this point. Uh, it's two floors. It's just enormous storefront. Um, and there's a lot of things. It, it's a constant wonder of, okay, what am I going to pick? Because mm -hmm, you're just, mm -hmm. you're confronted with things all the time. Some of it is out of my hands because sometimes, you know, people bring things in every day. Right. And sometimes people bring things in that I turn away. You know, there are certain things I just don't want to buy, like textbooks or periodicals mm -hmm. for the most part. People come in with things that I'm, I know other people will be interested in that they've asked about or that mm -hmm. I know are quite popular that I'm less interested in, but know is a good thing to have in the store. But then what's really wonderful is when people who are customers in some of the areas that I don't know, because I can't read every book. Right. Uh, you kind of, you assemble a knowledge of books through osmosis just mm -hmm. by talking to people about them, seeing what is brought in in relation to what other books uh, and a, a cursory knowledge of the subjects, um, cultural studies and so on, literary mm -hmm. theory. I feel like I have like a, a foundation of knowing what is going to be of interest, but you know, when people come in to, to buy books, they also bring in their books. And if they're buying interesting books, they're usually selling interesting mm, ones yeah. too. So that's how we get a lot of interesting books about music, interesting books about culture, mm -hmm. theory, philosophy, stuff like that. It's, it's very cumulative. Mm -hmm. And then you notice, you talk to people as they're buying books and selling books, you hear what they're interested in that kind of dovetails with my own interests a lot of the time. And it, you just kind of store it in the back of your head, and then and then you just find them. Yeah. And if somebody listening um, was interested in selling some books to you, I mean, and we're, we're talking to Mad and Aaliyah, the owner of Bookends in Florence, what kinds of things do you particularly enjoy getting or want to get or are look at, even looking for? Oh, gosh, there's so many things. I love art books. Mm -hmm. uh, I love, personally, I love literary criticism. The joke in the store is that I go out and buy tons of literary criticism, and that's the for me section because <laughs> nobody purchases it. Uh, any any leftist political thought mm -hmm. is very interesting to me. Any queer books, obviously, yeah. we're in a very queer area. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested in books and ephemera related to LGBT life and theory, whether it's... Uh, Critical theory, gender studies, uh, fiction. I'm always looking for fiction, anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. History, any of the the kind of sub-disciplines of sociology mm -hmm. that have morphed with continental philosophy to meld with literature and criticism. Okay. All of those yeah. types of things. Oh, and environmental studies. Mm -hmm. I love ecology books, regional ecology, that type of stuff. Is all, all of those are my favorite. But I like everything. Okay, yeah. And I can imagine it's a really great place. I always like to remind um, students, college students, that youth bookstores can be a wonderful place to get not your textbook, but most very often you're reading, well, fiction. I used to get all, when I was in college, I got all my fiction oh, at the sure, local youth sure. bookstore. But also because of what you are collecting, the literary theory, the, the, the political theory, those kinds of things, I can imagine... Um, it would be a great place to at least, you know, check out um, for students to check out to see if they can find some some of the books they need. There's a lot to chew on. And I, I always have infinite recommendations. I love Good. recommending Good. things. And I also I order a new stock, too. So I stock books that I've read that I really like or books that I'm interested in reading or books. I custom order books for people, too, and often will stock a spare copy in the store. So it's 
There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of recommendations, uh, tomorrow, right, is is Valentine's Day. Certainly um, is. And or, the, or the next day. I've lost track of what day That's it tomorrow. is. tomorrow. Oh. And um, yeah. can you recommend, um, if somebody wants to buy a Valentine's gift, either for uh, their romantic partner or their uh, family, you know, parent or child, do you have a couple of recommendations of, of the types of things that make good Valentine's gifts? Or Galentines or, or Palentines. Palentines, <laughs> exactly. Any yes. type of tines. Tine. Um. Oh, goodness. A book, you know, you can't go wrong with poetry. Who doesn't True. love reading some some love poems, some Shakespeare sonnets? Oh, I don't know how many of those I have, so like don't run down to bookstores <laughs> and buy them, but I have other things. Um I don't know, it's hard to say. Everybody's got different tastes. Mm-hmm. I think that a great gift to be like an Elena Ferrante book or something. Mm-hmm. Like something mm-hmm. just totally absurd and, and over the top. Because yeah. I think the humor of it. I love I love campy literature, so anything that's like outrageous and bonkers, I think would be a very, very appropriate fun. Valentine. Mm-hmm. Like I would personally feel very flattered by that. Mm-hmm. But um you know, at the end of the day, anything with a red or pink cover. It's got oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> do you do you get the um the legendary um I'm looking for a book. It's blue. Uh <laughs> I do, yeah. You get that question? Yeah, I get it a lot. And, you know, shocked how often I can remember. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. What it is, yeah. Or yeah. I saw this book once. Like, it looks like this. Do you still have it? Oh, I know exactly where it is because oh, I'm wow. here for 10 hours a day. What else am I going to do? Exactly, but know exactly. Know it's there. Now, and you, you have a website and you have books available through the website. Mm-hmm. Are they the same ones in the store or is it sort of a different stock? Some. It's a smattering. I have to list everything individually. So it's only about a couple hundred books okay. there. Uh, but it gives you it's it's more demonstrative of our interests rather than our inventory because we've got two hundred times what's on the website in the store. So, but it's up there, and you know, good, we've got social good. media too. Everything is just bookends in Florence mm-hmm. on social media, and then bookendsinflorence.com. And I post the events there and such. So Okay, yes. Um, and so my guest is Madden Aliyah, uh, owner of Bookends in Florence. And you can find out more about the store on their social media, on their mm-hmm. website. Um, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, in the, the 30 seconds or so that we have left, Megan, mm-hmm. when... You hear about a book and you can't remember the title. What exactly do you ask for? Oh gosh, well I probably I probably go crazy and search constant online and mm-hmm. ask everybody I know before I get to the bookstore. <laughs> Having worked in bookstores in the past, I think I, and I'm somebody who you know loves going down a Wikipedia black hole. So I sure. um, will probably find it online and then go buy it. Good good quality to have as a bookseller too. Yes. you have to like research. Yes, yes. You have to like research. Well, thank you, Madden Alea, the owner of Bookends in Florence, on Megan's Inn. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody Thank you. Else, thanks for tuning in. Join us tomorrow.